Good afternoon, everyone. Thank you for coming. So I was told by Hari Bhakti that some of you in the um, yoga lessons that you're taking were studying the 12th chapter of the Gita. Is that right? Got that right? Chapter 12. So I thought I'd speak from that a little bit. And I'll try to keep it brief. And um, give you an opportunity to raise any questions. We talked for a long time last night. So, this twelfth chapter is entitled Bhakti Yoga. <laughs> Works pretty good. <laughs> As it turns out. So, Krishna says, Arjuna says, Arjuna vach evam satata yukta ye bhaktastam paryupasate ye chapyaksharam avyaktam tesham ke yogavittamaha. So, Arjuna begins the chapter with a question and um, his question is uh, is interesting and uh, perhaps controversial in our egalitarian society and um, knowingly or unknowingly post-modern influenced society. Um, it's interesting and perhaps controversial in that regard because the question is yoga vittamaha ke, ke yoga vittamaha, which Yoga vit, Vita means uh, Veda, means knowledge, understanding. Which understanding of yoga is Uttama, <laughs> is the best? So we like to think they're all the best. And uh, <laughs> that's, uh, there's some truth to that, no doubt. <clears throat> and I think that. Uh, Krishna answers the question very, uh, very nicely if we study it very carefully. And um, it should dismiss our concerns that we might be, in hearing from the Gita, entering into some type of a sectarian um, stream uh, that uh, uh, might be a, f a form of uh, religious fanaticism. My path is better than your path, kind of an idea. Of course, we should all think that my path is the best, otherwise we better be on another path. <laughs> <laughs> so that, uh, that's important to note, and uh, we have to feel that way, and, and it's all right to voice that uh, as well. And the overarching, I suppose, way of balancing that is we have to acknowledge that uh, others' paths are the best paths for them. Hmm? So, as I said, we should think that we're on the best path for ourselves. That's important. Um, these paths of yoga and spiritual uh, practice, the pursuit of enlightened life and, and uh, real deep and meaningful universal love, love of God, are not... Um, 
easy paths to, to tread. This is the real uh, challenge yoga in the real sense of the of the term. Yoga means to to uh, to yoke really to to make a connection to link ourselves with our with our source. And uh, we've been at least um, in terms of our experience disconnected from that source for a long time. We're not really disconnected, but our experience is that we're we are to one extent or another <coughs> lost and searching. So it's a it's a yeah it's a great uh, challenge. So we need encouragement, and if we find a particular path that is indeed ego-effacing and has some prospect for taking us beyond the confines of the small world of our our mind and sensual experience, then um, then we should we should seek company that will encourage us along that path and uh, surround ourselves with whatever favorable circumstances um, uh, we can because again it's not uh, it's not easy in the world doesn't doesn't work in uh, doesn't move in this in, in the direction of supporting such a pursuit misery as it said loves company mm-hmm. and um, the world of the mind is uh, is uh, is miserable, really. <laughs> it's very, uh, uh, very limiting. It doesn't afford us the full experience of ourself. We cannot be all that we are in that small world of the mind, and uh, so there's an overriding kind of uh, anxiety that that pervades it, even if it's relatively good in many respects. Of course, it doesn't endure. Mm-hmm. So. So to rise above that is a, is a great uh, challenge, and we need all the help that we can get. And so, whatever interest we have in that, that should be uh, be encouraged. At the same time, there's place for um, discussing the, the differences in paths, and they there that, that that's important. Why people choose one over another? What are the differences? How much difference really is there? How much common ground is there on the various paths that are indeed, as I say, ego-effacing? What I mean to say by that is there are plenty of paths that are not ego-effacing at all, that use um, some ego-effacing language and so forth, but only uh, serve to enhance our um, predicament. So it's good to distinguish between those and we're left with only a handful to choose from. Hmm. Um, so, ostensibly here, uh, the, the the discussion in this chapter is between two of them. Uh, Arjun had just in the previous chapter witnessed an extraordinary um, um, theophany, and he had a personal epiphany, epiphany under the influence of Krishna that he himself, Arjun, kind of asked for, kind of pushed the envelope a little bit. Arjun, had, Krishna had spoken in the 10th chapter, I'm this, I'm that, I'm here, I'm there. He's more or less saying in that chapter, wherever you look, I am, if you have the eyes to see. Hmm? 
And so he spoke about himself being represented in various prominent manifestations of nature. We touched on this a little bit last night, you know, of bodies of water, I am the ocean. Um, you know, it's vast, and you stand on the shore, and you just think, is there any, really any other side to that? And I've heard about it. Maybe I've been there, but when I got there and looked back this way, <laughs> you know, it looked fa- fathomless uh, uh, and uh, unlimited in its expanse, and we were made to feel small, and so on and so forth. So there are many prominent manifestations of uh, of nature that give us some feeling of our smallness, and that's um, bringing us closer to the to the truth of the matter. Hmm? Uh, about our 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 nature, and so that's good. And at any rate, in speaking like this, kind of theoretically, Arjun, as I said in the next chapter, he pushed the envelope a little bit, and he said, "You know, you say you're this, you're that, you're everywhere, you're you're in everything. It'd be nice to see like that." So Krishna said, "Then see it. I'm everywhere. Everything's inside of me." And some type of extraordinary vision was uh, shown to him. Hmm? I recently read, and we published a review on The Harmonist. It's an online uh, magazine um, that we publish. A review of a book of a friend of mine's brother who... (laughs) who's a well-known uh, best-selling author. His name is um, Brian Green, Joshua Green's brother. And he writes on uh, f- physics and string theory, um, cosmological uh, issues, and so forth. And um, uh, his latest book, I forget the name of it, but it, it dealt with the idea that there of the multiverse in some detail. The ideal that the idea that there's there are many, what to speak, galaxies. We talked about last night briefly. You know, they they saw there were 500 galaxies through the Hubble telescope when they thought there was one, and it was ours. <laughs> Naturally, <laughs> ours was the only one. <laughs> So we got a little smaller there, um, but uh, the multiverse idea is much bigger than that, isn't it? How many galaxies in every universe, and and so on. So it's a it's a it's a theory, and um, at any rate, in in the review of the book that we we published, I forget the fellow who wrote the review, but it was was quite interesting, and he began it by citing some uh, verses from the previous chapter, the 11th chapter of the Gita. Hmm? Um, And this extraordinary vision is um, being uh, revealed to Arjuna. And then he goes on to speak about how this book about the multiverse and so forth uh, is so bizarre, if you will, the theory is so. I mean, it's 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 has some credibility mathematically and scientifically and so forth, but it's really bizarre um, sounding. And um, he likened it and demonstrated it in his review to what was being said in the Gita. And he said, in 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 brief, we've kind of come full circle here. 
after, after having dismissed these old books as being superstitious and entered into a objective exploration of of evidence and determining facts on the basis of such observable evidence, what we're observing is something like what's being talked about in the Bhagavad Gita. Hmm. Another, um, probably the, I think his name is Paul Steinhardt, he, he's a kind of, I think, maybe the originator of string theory. He has recently posited a a a, 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 a theory that is in response to the question as to what is the source of the Big Bang. If the Big Bang is the source of the universe, what's the source of the Big Bang? Kind of a um, interesting question. And um, he came up with the interesting answer that there's the, the source of the Big Bang is another Big Bang, is another Big Bang, is another Big Bang, and that time moves infinitely in both directions with no beginning and no end. And the universe is, the multiverse, uh, it, uh, it uh, with a big bang, it expands. And then at a certain point, it contracts. Hmm? Might sound familiar to some of you who have read a little bit about Hinduism, Hindu uh, cosmology, and so forth. This is exactly how it's described in the texts. Hmm? And he, he also theorizes that each successive expanding universe is informed by the previous universe. In other words, it, it, it carries with it something that connects it. And of course, in the language of, uh, of Hinduism and, 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 and the yoga world, there is a karmic, karma is what is, is, causes the continuum and uh, informs the next uh, expansion of the previous contracting universe and so on. And all this is going on forever hmm? with no, no beginning. Hmm? So uh, an interesting uh, side point here, we're, we're not that far off or they're not that <laughs> far off in the scientific community or coming closer. Um, but the point being here that something very wonderful was shown to Arjun, a kind of a vision in which he could understand that uh, that uh, God is everywhere. Of course, it's said in the text there that Krishna gave him eyes to see that. So, that's an interesting point because some people see God nowhere and some people see God everywhere. And so, who's who's right? Um, I guess whoever becomes a better person as a result of their vision, <laughs> uh, then the, uh, we could we could look at it like that. <clears throat> but um, and who's ever able to, able by the result of that to become a better person would be to, I think, to transcend the world of the mind, which doesn't allow us to be as good of a person or being an entity as we could, because of, as I explained briefly last night and on other occasions, the world of the mind is one in which we are forced to be a taker rather than a giver to one extent or another. 
world informed by sense perceptions and and mind and so forth is a is a limited perception of the nature of being and uh, again it's it's one that can't be maintained hmm? it's here today and like th- other things it will be gone tomorrow and in order to maintain it we struggle for existence and again as I mentioned last night per the Bhagavatam Jivo Jivasya one living being is food for another this is a great struggle so to maintain that um, false idea of self bodily mental idea of self which is just a passing like phase a bubble in the ocean of life hmm? is a struggle it can't be maintained ultimately and in order to do it well, we are at odds to one extent or another with others we are on the take we have to and an ego-effacing path is one in which we agree to die to the to the taking or the killing tendency within us. We have to uproot that. Hmm? It's the basis of our whole material existence. Material existence is a self-conscious unit identified with matter in a particular formation of matter for a short period of time and owing to the identification, struggling uh, to make it be all that the self is, enduring, happy, without uh, limit, cognizant, hmm? not in ignorance, not asat, not achit, not nirananda, but satchit ananda. So to try to make this bodily sense of mental sense of self eternal, fully cognizant and full of ananda joy that is a recipe for for failure hmm? Hmm. so to uproot that hmm, to kill the uh, the taking ego if you will the identity of being of being a taker even if we code it with language of giving and so on and so forth just to maintain that we have to take it's a it's a it's a very unbecoming situation we find ourselves in, hmm? and yoga means the, the unwillingness to settle for, for that, hmm? for anything less than all that I am. Hmm? So, <clears throat> Krishna showed showed Arjuna this extraordinary reality of of, of uh, that God is is everywhere he was inspired by that and um, now he's asking about the yoga discipline that is is uh, is best he's asking about it in a particular way he's uh, asking that in the previous chapter, or just you just said that you just showed me this extraordinary form, and it was apparent in my reaction to it that that it wasn't that comforting to me. I saw that God was everywhere, and that was far out. <laughs> but I, I couldn't do much with it. It was like very awe-inspiring. It caused me to step back and almost to freeze up. And previously, I was able to interact with you in a way that was much more um, intimate and uh, user-friendly. Uh, in fact, I very much like you, Krishna. <laughs> and uh, I found you to be very attractive uh, personally. 
and I'm merely in love with you as a friend. Arjuna has a relationship, rasa, with Krishna as a friend. Hmm? Like the perfection of friendship is to have uh, God as your friend. And Krishna is the one um, manifestation of God that affords us that opportunity, as well as to be the lover of of God and so forth in a romantic sense and even in a parental sense. It's a very extraordinary idea. Hmm? It's not a sectarian idea, really. It just happens to be the fact. At least what we've been shown, the Buddha afforded us some other idea of how to interact with God, which is interesting and noble and, um, and other manifestations of divinity as well. But this particular prospect comes to us in the form of, of Krishna. And again, Krishna is really the shape of the devotee's heart. Hmm? It, he, in other words, as I said last night, he corresponds with bhakti. And when bhakti reaches a certain pitch, uh, I cited the example of Uddhava, who, who liked to wear only the vestments of Krishna. Hmm? I mean, this is a crazy person. You know, I only wear the, the clothes of my... Uh, my friend, I love him so much, I can't even think of wearing any other clothes but his. I mean, it's, it's kind of insane. But love is crazy. Hmm? So this, this to have this kind of interest in in reality, in God, this is very uh, extraordinary. Hmm? It's 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 uh, and so when it reaches that kind of a pitch, there's a reciprocation from the Absolute, that we call Krishna. That's what we call Krishna. It responds to that kind of intensity that can be likened to the intensity of of the love that one has for a friend that would do anything we would do anything for or to, to, a, to, to a, a lover such that if anything, for example, gets in the way, reason, let's say, between two young people's love affair as to why it's not good, it only serves to inflame that, it, that much more. Nothing can can check it, something like that. This kind of enthusiasm for yoga, this kind of enthusiasm for self-realization, for, for love of God, this is very extraordinary. This is what Krishna corresponds with. Hmm? And, and he's okay with the idea that everybody doesn't have that kind of intensity of interest. That's okay too. Hmm? But if you do, then I show myself in this way. The idea, and he had been showing himself. Krishna's the Arjuna's there in the Leela, and and we kind of step back from his friendly experience into of intimacy with Krishna, and Krishna shows some his his godhood, so to speak. Which, in order to have that friendly rela- friendly relationship, he has to suppress for the sake of intimacy. When he shows it. Arjuna had to step back and become prayerful and uh, reverential and so forth. And and uh, he even thought, previously I acted with you in a different way. I, maybe I was offensive. Maybe it was inappropriate. I mean, your God, my God. <laughs> and he was stunned by this. But he expressed his clear uh, preference for um, um, uh, intimacy with Krishna and the, and the beautiful... The form of Krishna is described there in very, with very uh, powerful uh, words. Uh, the, the beauty of that form, you know, Krishna's uh, milk uh, maidens, the the the, the uh, cow 
milk ladies, gopis, they in Bhagwat, this, 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 that's the sequel to the Gita, you have to get like about a thousand yoga, ten thousand yoga hours to get that in your, <laughs> on your, your credits. That's the credits. It's just, Gita's about 700 verses, that's about 18,000, so I have to start that course too. Um, but uh, there, these gopis, they, they, they at one point one point in the leela they 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 uh they uh, cursed brahma brahma's the creator the four-headed creator right they cursed him why they said because you made eyes that blink and for that split second we cannot see the form of krishna hmm? And it's very painful to us. Now, we don't even think about blinking, right? We just do it. We don't think that we... What kind of yogis were they? You can imagine. Hmm? You're conscious of their blinking and the object of their amour, of their love, hmm, that they couldn't see for that second. How beautiful must be that beatific vision, if you will, of Krishna. Hmm? So Arjuna has 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 had that vision. He's seen a a a a bigger vision that was actually quantitatively qualitatively lesser. Hmm? To use a Zen you know term, less is more. So Krishna is the less that's more hmm? in terms of his two two-handed form, human-like form, and so forth. The implication of all of this is again. The absolute affording us the uh, intimacy with uh, with itself. Mm-hmm. So, despite the fact that Arjuna experienced that and the and found the form of Krishna, the personal form of Krishna, to be more compelling, more attractive, more yogically um, interesting, and uh, and and perfect as an object of love. After all, he is a bhakta, so his path is the, is the path of love. And to love, you have to have two things. You have to have the, the love, and you have to have the object to repose the love in. Hmm? So, now in this, as this chapter begins, he, he thinks about his experience, and he raises a kind of a doubt about it, he wants confirmation from Krishna. He says, you know, there are those people, like me, he's saying, that really find that your personal form to be most attractive and they want to, they, they, they love you like this. Um, they might not even look like mystics. They're kind of, you know, uh, uh, necessarily. Therefore, Vaishnavira Kriyamudra Bhignina Bhujai, they said. Hmm? The devotee of Krishna may be very difficult to understand. Hmm? What is his or her uh, reality? They may move, for example, and more readily so, in the world in ways that parallel, at least externally, the movements of ordinary people. Hmm? They are not typically yogis, for example, sitting in caves, as I said, dressing in ashes, which is pretty different from most people and kind of stands out to us as that's different. 
they, they must have something very extraordinary. They don't want anything of the world. They live in a remote place and so forth. But more readily, we, we find, um, well, Arjun was, uh, you know, a, a statesman, a, a warrior. That's pretty worldly uh, kind of a orientation, to use an example. Um, but even amongst those in the dress of sadhakas, we find practitioners, for example, hmm? if they are siddhas in the dress of sadhakas, we find they are they're uh, engaged in many ways in relationship with the world. They're they're not fasting all the time. They're maybe eating nicely even and cooking and shopping even, as I said last night, and all kinds of things. Hmm? So they <laughs> what's the difference, right? So uh, to ascertain that difference, uh, one has to go a little deeper and be able to see a little bit into the heart, a little association. You can then you can you can understand. Oh, there's a difference. He or she is moving in the same way, ostensibly externally, but the motivation is entirely different. Hmm? So to trace that out is uh, uh, a, a, a perhaps a little uh, difficult. It's difficult to understand who is a uh, Vaishnava. There are many examples in the Leela of Chaitanya, so many examples of persons who were ostensibly very um, ordinary in their appearance and taken as such by people. And suddenly, hmm, there was a fellow, for example, his name was Vidyanidhi, hmm? yeah, Premanidhi Vidyanidhi, yeah, same. He used to ride on a palanquin. Other people would carry him, hmm? and um, and he dressed like uh, very much like a worldly person who was like very concerned about uh, the latest fashions and so forth. Um, and the, one of the associates of Chaitanya, uh, Mukunda, told another one, Gadadhar said, a great Vaishnava is coming to town today. I want you to meet him. Gadadhar was a great Vaishnava, a great devotee. So he wanted to see him. And he went to see him and he thought, what's this? Guy's riding on a pallet. That means like a worldly person. Hmm? And dressed like this and, and so forth. And the Mukunda could understand, oh, he's misunderstood. He doesn't... He's not able to see his heart. Ah, so he's quoted a verse. He cited a verse from the Bhagavad. Hmm? This verse spoke about a leela of Krishna. Hmm? How Krishna killed the witch Putana. Hmm? Putana had come uh, disguised as a as a as a as a uh, like a, a goddess to Krishna in his infancy, and offered her breast to him, breast milk, but on her Nipple, she smeared poison. This is a leela. It's very interesting. So, she, uh, she, uh, here was Krishna apparently completely um, uh, indefensible, couldn't defend himself, infant. And here was this goddess offering the breast, which is the tender, you know, part of the, 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 the affectionate um, mother's milk. This would make the headlines. You know, mother smears p- 
poison on breast <laughs> offers to child, you know. It's just sort of like <laughs> so <laughs> so there she she offered and he 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 drank it. She died and she got prem. Mm-hmm. He gave her prem. Mm-hmm. So he quoted a verse like this and when this Vidyaniti heard the verse he fell off the palanquin into a trance and tears poured from his eyes and so forth. And It tipped the scale for him. These devotees are moving in the world. They have love of Krishna. And every now and then something will come up and will tip the scale for them. This is called Udipana. Hmm? Vibhav. Udipana Vibhav. In the world of ecstasy, of bhava, hmm? There's something called Stayibhav. Stayibhav means a, a dominant form of ecstasy that, 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 that really uh, defines the devotee's love of Krishna as a friend, for example, as a servant, as a, as a lover. This is Dasyam, Sakyam, Maduram, Vatsalyam. I said the other day that the mystics in our tradition, they weren't so concerned with gravitational force, electromagnetic force, the forces of matter, the objective side of our human experience, they were concerned with the subjective side, the experience, consciousness. They felt consciousness is driving the whole thing. We should be more concerned with that. Than the forces that um, move matter. So they wrote about matter uh, kind of poetically. Hmm? But as we've heard, there's some correspondence even in their poetic writing about cosmology and so forth with some of the latest findings in cosmology through mathematics and uh, science, other languages than poetry. They wrote about that poetically, but with some some accuracy. Hmm? But they weren't that concerned with it. Hmm? Conversely, of course, modern science is not that concerned with consciousness. <laughs> that iffy, subjective thing, that feeling thing that you can't measure, problem, <laughs> they think. If you can't measure it, they think it must not exist. Hmm? But there may be things that Transcend measurement. The Sanskrit word maya means to measure. This is our problem. We want to measure everything. To measure everything means you want to bring it within your grasp, to control it. Math lends itself to kind of controlling the world, or so it's thought. And to some extent it's true. But to try to control the whole thing, that is folly. That is maya. <laughs> that is illusion. So, but to be under the control, hmm? you see, when you start to move in a direction, it's so nice. When you start to move in a direction away from controlling, into the idea that that you're controlled, you you start to come in contact with the nature of the controlling agency. That that beforehand might sound, I don't want to be controlled by anybody. Hmm? I want to be free. I'm an individual. I don't want to be controlled by. But the illusion of, of the world, of course, is that we, we are controlled in our sense of freedom. <laughs> we are so restricted in our world of the mind. Hmm? We are so much following the dictates of our mind and senses. We have no freedom. 
even in the workplace, what freedom do we have? Right? We have to work, we have to clean the food cart, then we have to start cooking again early in the morning, and then, you know, back again. It goes. <laughs> so, uh, as we move away from controlling in a systematic way through yoga, we start to come in touch with the actual controlling agency. If we go against the current and try to be the controller, that controlling agency will just move away from us. I've given an example before. If we took a magnetic flake that has a positive charge, hmm, and then you put it up to a, a big positive magnet, what will happen? It will be repelled, hmm, right? If you same, take the same flake, magnetic flake, and you turn it into a negative charge, then what will happen? It will come like this. Hmm? So we have a kind of a false positivity here that uh, in our material condition that we are the sustainer, we are the maintain, we are providing, and the world makes us feel like we need to be the provider. We need to get out there and work and struggle. Otherwise, it's all going to go down. Hmm? It's going to go down. <laughs> Your, <laughs> your sense of self, no matter how much you struggle, that's a fact. Hmm? Uh, but there's another real self that won't go down. And that should be found. That's what yoga is, is searching for. And to move in the direction of that self is to acknowledge, I'm not the sustainer, I'm not the maintainer, I can't control the whole thing. Hare Krishna. This is idea. I give up. <laughs> Something like that. Hmm? Um, this is a sign of surrender, sharanagati, faith, shraddha. Hmm? In something, that there's something greater than myself and I can trust in it, actually. I have to put my trust in it. I have no other recourse, really. Hmm? Hmm? But as we do that, what we find is that controlling agency is actually affectionate by nature. After all, it has to be a very comprehensive controlling agency, right? And there's no more comprehensive means of controlling than affection, than love. Hmm? This is how Krishna becomes the Supreme Godhead. <laughs> He's controlling by affection, by affection's force. Nothing can exceed that. However, however physically or mentally or intellectually we can handcuff one, so forth. The force of, the strength of love cannot, uh, uh, can break those bonds. Hmm? So Krishna is, the, this is the, he is the perfect object of love. And Arjuna senses it and he, he's seeking some confirmation about it. This is his humility. This is a sign of spiritual progress, actually. Hmm? The more we doubt, the more we know. There's some truth to that. Hmm? more uncertainty we have and the more we're comfortable with some level of uncertainty. Hmm? Love is full of uncertainty and we certainly don't want to give it up at the same time. Hmm? So some, he, he, he thought, I, this feels great to me, this is the best thing, but I, I think that, that I have devotion and I repose it in you and your form, I think that's the best, but, but what do you think? Hmm? He wants to, on a low level, we can say that in our spiritual pursuit, we should have some guidance that will help us, and we should seek confirmation that our experiences are what we think they are, because that world of the mind is not so easy to get out of, and it can follow us into the world of our 
spiritual practice and deceive us readily. Hmm? I'll give you a cute example. Uh, years ago, and many years ago in New York, one of my um, fellow uh, um, uh, students um, uh, was uh, told our guru, he said that, uh, he said, Prabhupada, when I chant, I get surrounded by a blue light. And Prabhupada said, keep chanting, it'll go away. <laughs> so, it's possible we can imagine our way into something that uh, we haven't really arrived at at all and is very different than what we imagine it to be. Hmm? People imagine themselves to be lightened, enlightened. They use some terminology from the uh, sacred texts and so forth, and it sounds good, and people even pay for it. Hmm? But um, uh, it's, there's a lot of counterfeits out there, something like that, is uh, what I want to say. Uh, it's, it's not such a cheap thing. And Arjun, as a good student here, he's, he's questioning about his realization. My Guru Maharaj once told me that if you are doing your practice hmm, and Krishna comes to you in your, in your practice, you experience that internally, and he asks you for something. This is my second guru. After my guru passed away, then he, he advised me to uh, to take guidance from another uh, contemporary of his. So he was my spiritual uncle. So he was telling me that if you do your practice and Krishna comes to you and asks for some service, then you should go back and ask your guru, is that the guy you were talking about? Hmm? <laughs> is that <laughs> something like that? Hmm? Uh, actually... Krishna comes to us in no way more prominent than he comes in the form of the Guru. It doesn't mean that the Guru is Krishna, but he's Krishna in a representational sense, like an ambassador represents the president and so forth. And he really knows what the president wants him to say hmm. to the foreign, you know, administrators and so forth. There's no like going around him or something like that and uh, ignoring. He was sent there with a message, he has something to say and so forth. Hmm? So, Arjuna is showing this kind of example. It's very nice, very instructive for us. Hmm? He has deep, deep experience and realization. And still, he wants some confirmation of that. Um, he knows it's, it's, it's not a cheap thing. He knows the power of the mind to deceive and so forth. So, he wants to know that, uh, that my affinity for you my reposing my love and affection in you in your personal form, that's a, a, a kind of yoga, and you've talked about it. Hmm? The Gita really talks about uh, bhakti yoga, I would say, directly and indirectly. It talks about what bhakti yoga is, what bhakti yoga is not. It talks about other types of yoga for the sake of helping us to understand bhakti, Hmm? We might talk about a different type of yoga, and then for for the sake of comparison. But the whole purpose of the Gita hmm? is is to uh, is to teach the significance of bhakti. It's a very uh, theistic uh, book. It's very interesting in that respect. And we were talking about it briefly last night after the talk. Some of us were sitting. It comes to my mind now, if you will. Um, I pointed out that, and with your help, you promoted the, you prompted the the discussion, that the Gita is a book that is very much about 
the nature of being more than it is about believing. There are other religious texts in the world and they have their virtues and all, and all, but often they speak about believing. They don't tell us much about the nature of being. In the Gita we find a discourse on the nature of being and when we hear it, when we, when we, when we, with, with good, uh, good explanation and so forth, it's apparent to us that, that it's talking about something that we are experiencing from a different angle of vision that we didn't have uh, before. Hmm? In other words, we're, it's showing us something. It's not asking us to believe in something. It's showing us something that has been right before our eyes. Just like the simple idea, for example, that, um, well, let's say that desire for acquisition is a recipe for suffering. I mean, try it. <laughs> you want something <laughs> and you're in anxiety. <laughs> You have to get it somehow or other. It's it's troublesome and so forth. I mean, this is very simple, but uh, to penetrate deeply on the significance of this truth, the far-reaching ramifications of it, and so forth. This is what the Gita does. It's very astounding when you when you come there. You go, whoa! <laughs> well, that's what I. Yeah, that's what I. No wonder my life is problematic. But now, what do I do? I've got all these desires. I've got desires, and my parabda, my karma, doesn't even facilitate the fulfilling of them. Hmm? That's also another issue, problematic. <laughs> so, in, in this way, in a simple way, I'm explaining to you that that, uh, that something many of you already know. The Gita speaks about the nature of being. It reveals something to us that's right before our eyes that we just couldn't quite see, hmm? and and it's not a small thing when we see it from that angle of vision. It's life transforming. Hmm? So, uh, another example. The Gita doesn't talk about believing in a soul. The Gita never asks us to believe in a soul. The, the Gita basically tells us that consciousness is transcendental. Consciousness is not um, of the natural world. Hmm? It's supernatural. Now, what I mean by that is, we don't ask, do you believe in consciousness? You have to have consciousness to make that statement. To believe in anything, you have to have consciousness. Consciousness is kind of the root of the whole experience of life, you understand? So, it's ridiculous to say, do you believe in consciousness? Without consciousness, you can't believe in anything. You can't, uh, you can't ask if anybody believes in anything. Hmm? So, we all have con con with consciousness, we, we, we think that we are consciousness. That's how we act. We act as if I am consciousness, and it's kind of somewhere up here, hmm? and it drives everything beneath it. Hmm? In other words, some 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 volition comes, and then there's action that follows that. That's how we naturally conduct ourselves in everyday life, and everyone does that. Everyone does that. Hmm? Now, some people philosophize, of course, that that consciousness is not actually uh, driving the uh, the natural organism, hmm? and they make a, a an argument on that basis with some uh, based on some evidence that they interpret in a particular way, empirically derived evidence and interpret in a particular way, and so on. But then they they don't live like that. Hmm? That's very illogical, you see. Hmm? 
They don't live like that. Everyone lives just like the Bhagavad Gita talks about what consciousness is. So we don't believe in a soul any more than we believe in consciousness. We, however, we do define consciousness differently than, um, than, a, than, a, than a materialist or a naturalist defines consciousness. We don't define it as being part of the natural world. And our particular definition of it, the Gita's definition of it, happens to conform with the intuitive experience of every human being and the way in which we actually conduct our everyday lives. Hmm? We act as if we exist, uh, and, and there, there's somebody in there. Hmm? To theorize that really there's not, we're just an automaton, and then be concerned about debating it is ridiculous. If you're an automaton, what's the point of debating it? Hmm? So, <laughs> so philosophy gets that bad uh, in, uh, in, in Western society. <laughs> hmm? So, in this way, as I'm saying, the Gita is about the nature of being. Now, it has a theological component to it as well. This is the philosophical component. It has a theological component. Krishna tells us, I'm God. We can't see that, right? That's not something you can quite see. You can see that, yeah, my attachments are my problems. Hmm? But I can't see that Krishna's God. Some people say, I can't even see Krishna, Period. <laughs> to speak of that, he's God. But the philosophical arguments on the nature of being are so compelling hmm, that if you listen to it, you embrace them, you, you, it creates kind of a, a teachable, teachable, kind of favorable moment. It opens the heart for understanding things that at present you can't see, that by practice of yoga you will come to see and experience. So there's an element of faith, but it's a very well-reasoned faith. It's not at all the blind faith that the Gita is advocating. It opens our eyes to see things around us that we could never see before. And on the basis of that, it says, and there's more to see too. <laughs> there's more to that. And it's more profound and more beautiful. And Arjuna is having that experience. And even having that experience, he knows we might have a doubt, so he asked this question. Arjun, Krishna, I feel like this, that worshipping your personal form, this is, this is the most perfect uh, form of yoga, yoga uttama, I think. It is yoga uttama, yukt uttama. The most perfect way to be uh, uh, connected with, with truth. What's your opinion? He says, there are other people who think, he says in this verse, that the worship of your formless self, that that, that might be a better understanding of what uh, yoga constitutes. So here's then, uh-oh, now we're back into this, it seems like there's a sectarian play here, which is better, and so forth. We might want to, might feel troubled by that, but as I said, Krishna answers it very nicely. Hmm. First of all, we have to understand one thing. He says, which type of worship is better? That's what he's asking. Hmm? <coughs> he uses the word pariupasate. Hmm? Some worship your personal form, like I do. Some love that. And some worship or love your uh, the formless idea of you. 
Hmm? Which is better? So both are doing bhakti in a sense. Hmm? There's worship on both sides. Hmm? The object of the worship is slightly different. Hmm? One object is Krishna personally. The other object of worship is the is the what we would call the 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 aura of Krishna. Hmm? It's formless, you know. Sometimes described as light, nirvishesh, without distinction, without differentiation. Hmm? Krishna's lila is full of differentiation. It's full of bias, for that matter. Some people like Ram, some like Krishna, hmm? but it's all okay there. Because Ram is Krishna also. <laughs> That's a big subject, but uh, the nature of, the, of love is that it's, not a, it's variegated. It's always fresh and new and so forth. Well, as I said the other night, the Leela is moving in, in, in nature. It's the absolute dancing and moving. So there's some variety and there's some differentiation there. But the differentiation does not get in the way of the unity because everyone is fixed on the same center and a variety of uh, responses, so to speak, come from that. Hmm? If you were to take, I've given an example before, a stone and throw it in a pool, it would cause ripples to go out concentrically that would look very beautiful. If you threw another stone in another place, uh, then it would disturb your mind comparatively. But if you could throw a thousand and eight stones in the exact same place, the ripples would only get bigger and more, more, hmm? and so forth. So there is a possibility of a variety that arrives from, der derives from, from unity. Hmm? Now, there may be a unity with the Absolute that does not afford variety. One could argue, if you could have a unity and a variety at the same time, that would sound better. <laughs> this is how the devotee reasons about his or her particular path, and there's some good reasoning to that. But Krishna says, Actually, you ask which is better, and uh, and and uh, and and serving my personal form. He said, "I like that more." I'm Krishna. <laughs> what do you expect me to say? <laughs> it's kind of like that. Of course, what do you expect me to say? I mean, there's a lot of theology into this, obviously. But simply put, uh, I, I, but there are others, and they they worship this other kind of impersonal, uh, formless manifestation of myself. He said, they're, they're good too, he says. I like them too. They don't like me as much, but I like them too. They don't like me personally, and I don't mind. Hmm? You know, that's their choice. That is a manifestation of myself. That is a transcendental possibility, hmm? a, a destination, if you like. And I've said earlier in the Gita, as they approach me, I reciprocate accordingly. Some people want to stay in the material world, so I let them stay there. Some people want to think I don't exist. I give them, he says, the faith and the reasoning to support it. He says it in the Gita. <laughs> we have to appreciate those atheists. You know, we have to know where that, all that's coming from, that, that faith, that intelligence. So I give them all support for that. Hmm? He's really easygoing, Krishna. You know? <laughs> He's not very demanding. <laughs> If you like me, that's another thing. I like you, but if you don't like me as much, I don't know, what can I say? Mm -hmm. All right. So, so that some people like that, hmm? he says, that they get there by my grace. Hmm? 
they have some bhakti. It's uh, bhakti mixed with jnana. Hmm? Jnana means knowledge. Knowledge means, very briefly, the antithesis of ignorance, and ignorance means attachment. So along with knowledge comes bhairagya, detachment. One who has knowledge hmm, is not attached to things that don't endure because that person knows that's not going to be a very good idea. <laughs> that's not very knowledgeable. <laughs> that's not very intelligent. I want an enduring life, and if I attach myself and my whole sense of self is based on things that don't endure, I, I can't have it. So um, the Gani moves away characteristically from um, material attachment very overtly. That is part of the path. As I mentioned last night, detachment or renunciation is not really per se directly part of the path of bhakti. The path of bhakti is loving Krishna. And if in the context of that some things aren't favorable for that, then I let them go. Hmm? In the path of jnana, however, bhairagya or detachment is a limb is a, of the body of, of the practice of jnana yoga. Hmm? It's something that is overtly cultivated. We overtly cultivate love of Krishna, and in the context of that, we let some things go. And some things we, we grab onto because they'll be favorable for Krishna's service. Hmm? If you come to the temple of Krishna and someone says, Oh, please take prasad, some food that has been offered to Krishna, you say, No, I'm fasting. You think, No, you don't understand. This is better than fasting. <laughs> this you should accept. This is favorable for bhakti. Hmm? So, the jnanis, they, they have a, those who have, have an inclination towards that path, they have a certain uh, uh, interest. I characterize it something like this. They, would li they love to exist. They know that the temporal nature of material existence is, is problematic to be identified with that, and they strive to, in to endure. Their main focus really is sat to exist in an enduring way. Hmm? Their knowledge is to know what is not Brahman. Neti, neti. It's not this, it's not that. Hmm? And their bliss is, their ananda is, um, that, they, that they, ananda means bliss, it means love, that they love to exist. Hmm? As I said, some people love to exist and some people exist to love. This is a ba kind of a basic difference between the, the Gyan orientation and the Bhakti orientation. We look at it, uh, and I think the Gita looks at it like this way, at, like this also, that the Ananda component of the self is the most important component of the self. As I said last night, you could exist but not be cognizant. You could exist and be cognizant but not be blissful, but you can't be blissful and not exist and be aware of it. Hmm? So if you have Ananda as the center, then sat and chit follow uh, automatically. And also, it's well-reasoned, I think, to say that, to think that knowing and being, or existing, are most meaningful in the context of loving. Hmm? Although the sat and the chit are less significant in the bhakti path, in comparison to the Ananda, they nonetheless 
become more significant in a sense than they do in the Gyan mark where they are more significant. Hmm? That's an interesting philosophical uh, thought. And this is what the Gita is saying. But Krishna is very clear, he says, but some people want that. Hmm? And, and, and they get it. And I give it to them. Hmm? And whatever, we come back to this, whatever is best for you, then that's best. Krishna doesn't argue with that. Hmm? We want to share, naturally, our love and our experience and so forth. And, and we also like to speak about our path as, as, as the best as we feel like it. And there should be a place for that and a place for everyone to do that. Hmm? There's also some objective yardstick we could come to bear with and say, objectively speaking, then looks like what you're saying is that the bhakti path is better. Hmm? I could say yes, but the subjective reality is ultimately the determining factor. So what's best for you, then that's best for you. I'm not going to... Uh, we'll agree with Krishna. He says there are others. They like that. Then he goes on to say here in this chapter um, that there are others. They like that. They, they, I said earlier in the Gita, Brahmanohi Pratishtaham, that Brahman, that Nirvishesh, that formless manifestation of my being, hmm? that's subordinate to me. That is Brahman. I am Param Brahman. Brahmanohi Pratishtaham. I am the Pratishta of Brahman. I am the standing on which Brahman has its foundation. Hmm? I am the seat on which Brahman has its foundation. It's my aura, he's more or less saying. And it's described like this in some of the other texts. Hmm? When we enter into that aura, then there's no differentiation there. We don't see another soul, another... There's just Om and Shanti, peace, oneness, existing. And there's absolutely no trouble there. That hmm? the Ananda is like relief. Hmm? relief from material existence and the troublesome movements of material existence that, that are that are mental and sensually <coughs> driven. In other words, we're under the oppression of the demands of the mind and the senses are moving here and there. Oh, I'd have to, no, I have to do that anymore. It's over. It's an eternal rest. Bhakti, on the other hand, the Ananda of Bhakti is, is full of movement. Hmm? I mean, love requires a little, little movement. Hmm? It's a lot of movement, actually. So, uh, but that movement is not like material movement. Mm -hmm. Therefore, as I said earlier, sometimes it's hard to understand a devotee. It may look like an ordinary person, mm -hmm. not sitting quietly, only. Mm -hmm. Maybe even dancing. Mm -hmm. But what's driving that? Mm -hmm. What is the force that's driving that? Is, is it? Is it? It is a bhakti. Yeah. We can trace that out. Hmm? There will be other symptoms. If we have eyes to see, we can tell. Ah, hmm, he or she is driven by this. Hmm. So Krishna then, having said, eh, they, bo they both get their goal. I afford them that. It, uh, and those who choose that, 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 that option is there. Hmm? You, would, you ask which one I like. You're asking me personally. So, I mean, obviously, I like this one. Um, but he says also... But I have to say this, he said about the other one, it's also a little more difficult, that path. It's a little more difficult to meditate, for example, on the formless idea. And it's a little bit difficult. It's kind of, kind of troublesome. I yeah. Whereas Bhakti tends to be a little more user-friendly. Hmm? Um, he makes this, this point. 
And then, of course, he goes on in the chapter to speak about, just to summarize quickly before we come to a close, gradations of bhakti. Or how he he says first, the best thing is you sit and uh, and 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 dwell on my leelas hmm? and 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 become active within, entering and participating in those leelas. If you can't do that, he said, this is a high thing, then you become busy planting the tulsi trees, hmm? opening the temples, hmm? um, uh, engaging in a whole range of human activities for my purpose. Hmm? Well, and if you can't do that, he, he goes down, down. And he sa- Finally he says, but if you can't do any, any of this, just then give, give to somebody. Start giving hmm? somewhere. What this chapter is about is what is the perfect object of devotion? This is the last chapter of the middle six chapters that are about bhakti that follow the last verse, obviously, of the sixth chapter where Krishna says, oh, of all types of yogis, bhakti is, this is, this is the best kind of yoga. I mean, to be connected by love is idea is 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 arguably more more powerful than to be connected by any other means to me. Hmm? Um, it 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 activates me. It makes me active. Hmm? Otherwise, I'm passive. I'm act. I'm at, You love me. Oh, I love you. I'm after you. So it has something from that side that's helping us, so to speak. It's therefore it's called an effortless path. Hmm? It's not based on our effort. It's best on, based on kind of situating ourselves that Krishna will be attracted to us and then obviously it will be easy <laughs> uh, for us to progress. So there, anyway, at the end of the sixth chapter, Krishna spoke about bhakti and here he concludes the whole section on bhakti speaking about the object of bhakti, the perfect object. In other words, bhakti means love and for there to be love there has to be an object in which love is reposed. The question is here, what is the most perfect object of love to repose my love in? Is it that formless manifestation of yourself or the form that I, Arjun says, personally like? Krishna says, well, you know, it's me. The other one is there. Some people like that's okay, it's good. It's transcendental, it's worthy, it's, they, and they achieve it. It's a little more difficult, hmm? um, but... Um, but it, it can be achieved by my grace. And otherwise, he said, he gives a progression. Do this, do this. If you can't do this, do this. If you can't do this, do this. And he ends up, if you can't do that, just give somewhere. Start giving. It means even if you give to the wrong object or an imperfect object, hmm, the nature of giving is that it refines over time the sense of uh, its its object. In other words, if I give to you and I give entirely to you, hmm? let's say I give entirely to my house to get all paid off and set up and I give myself entirely to it. Hmm? And then, um, you know, it burns down by an accident or something or whatever. It's not going to endure. That's problematic, but by giving... The nature of giving is such that the more it's selfless, there's two things to giving perfectly, I would say. One, you have to give selflessly without any expectation of getting. 
And two, you have to repose it in an object that can actually take unlimitedly. Right? If I'm going to give unlimitedly, but the object I repose my love in can't accept unlimited love, then there's going to be a problem. So the perfect object of love is that object of love that can accept, that's actually the center. I've given an example before. What's the center of our body from a um, nutritional point of view? I, we say it's the stomach. If you put food in the stomach, it will be transformed and distributed to every part of the body. If you just put it in the tongue and don't swallow it, it's going to be problematic. So there's a center. Hmm? Krishna means the center. That you give the energy there, give the love there, and it, mystically it's distributed everywhere. Hmm? So there is a center. You have to find that center. How we find that center? Start giving somewhere, even off-center. The giving is half of the equation, and so it's a living thing. In other words, it will, it will refine its object over time. If I keep giving, I'll give there and I'll get frustrated because the object wasn't perfect to some extent. Hmm? But if I'm convinced that giving is, this, is, is, what, uh, is what, what living is really constituted of in a meaningful sense, then I continue giving, the object will be refined. One day I'll find myself in a situation like this. We're actually talking about uh, the perfect object of love from the point of view of timeless uh, literature like the Bhagavad Gita. Hmm? We, what's coming before us and has come before Arjuna is, is, is the other half of the equation. I mean, a lot of people talk about unconditional love and so forth. That's a wonderful idea. But where to, you can really only realize it fully in the context of reposing your unconditional loving sentiment on the perfect object of love. Then that love will go everywhere. That's what that's what this form of Krishna is about. And he says, at least get if you don't. He says definitively, yes, yeah, I'm the perfect object of love. That's right. I'm yoga Maha. But do this anyway. Do do the other half if you don't believe me. Just give somewhere. And then, of course, the balance of the chapter, he goes on to speak beautifully about the qualities of his devotees and how, if you look at it carefully, how, in the context of their devotion, everything that would be realized by sitting and meditating and renouncing and so forth, it also comes within them. Hmm? The implication being that, that they didn't miss out anything from the Gaunmarg. Hmm? They got perfect knowledge from their bhakti. So, any question? Yes. Um, you spoke very kindly about the um, impersonal conception and, and it appears that Krishna speaks um, more acceptingly than perhaps the, the, than the Vaishnavas do about it. The, he, he is he's accepting them, but from the uh, Gaudiya standpoint, they're they're almost uh, condemning of it to in, incredibly. So, is there some balance point to to come to understand that? I think I mean, that I, I liked how you presented it, and I liked Krishna's view of it. I, I had an experience to where someone I knew traveled in India and, and uh, went to all of the Vaishnav 
things and was becoming very attached to Vaishnavism. And then they traveled with some impersonalists who they had uh, a great affection for. You know? And then they couldn't balance or understand how all of these people were more or less being condemned within the, the literature. So it was taking it, not considering their you know, per personal endeavors and, <coughs> and the fact, as, as you stated, that there is a degree of bhakti within that. Mm -hmm. so, mm -hmm. In Gyam, there's sattviki bhakti. It means, it's a big topic, but there's bhakti that is a manifestation of sattva. Mm -hmm. Gyan is about knowledge of the self. Knowledge of the self is sattvic. Faith in, faith in the self, in atma, is sattvic. Hmm? Faith in, in Krishna is, is nirguna. Hmm? That is another thing. Um, but uh, I think that, uh, that, that weak faith has an enemy or needs an enemy. So often people in different paths they're not very um, well situated on the path and so they kind of make a boogeyman, if you will, uh, out of another faith in order to um, make themselves feel better about their own path. That's uh, an inevitable kind of a result, I think, to one extent or another. And so uh, some of that goes on. At the same time, that being said, uh, sometimes someone who is and, um, knows better than that and doesn't have weak faith but has deep experience may speak strongly about um, another path in almost in a derogatory way it might seem at, at times in order to uh, help certain students who might need something like that in order to stay on the path. Hmm? Um, my Gurmarsh, for example, he sometimes did that, and once he was asked, he said, uh, he said, you know, you speak really, uh, this, this uh, uh, associate of his said, sometimes you speak and even write to your students about bhakti in such a way that um, it's good and all, but it, it makes other paths um, look maybe worse than they are or something like that. And, um, and so he said, no, you see, it's like this. If uh, What I'm doing is I'm planting a tree and I'm putting a fence around that hmm, so that it will be protected. Just like if you want to plant a tree and you know, so deer will come and eat it, you know, so you have to put a little fence around that, he said. But if it grows nicely, then of its own in due course, it will branches will overflow the fence once it's strong and so forth. Hmm? So sometimes teachers will take different strategies and one has to understand that strategy in the context of their particular presentation in time and circumstance and so on and so forth. And sometimes people won't be able to do that and they'll take a time and place kind of consideration emphasis as if it's the whole emphasis for all time and all place and so forth. And then you get somebody repeating the teacher's words even hmm, without any realization of why he said what he said, what he was trying to accomplish, and the bigger picture and so forth. That's why you need really a successive teacher, if you will, hmm, in that person's absence over time to round the picture out 
and um, and um, <coughs> and help people to avoid, in the name even of the teacher, hmm? and speaking the words literally, um, uh, being engaged in nothing more than some kind of sectarian propaganda and fundamentalist uh, religious orientation in the name of essential spirituality. It happens. It happens in all different sects, unfortunately. So, so yes, and if you look, for example, at the times of Chaitanya Mahaprabhu when this chanting of Hare Krishna, he, he made prominent and so forth and so on. And you, you study the time and, and even the literatures and so forth, you find an, an interaction of different uh, sects an interaction, a healthy interaction between jnanis and 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 bhaktas, and and, and so forth. Well, well, they have their differences, and they talk about them, and so forth, and they explain them. Um, uh, and uh, and also, when you are establishing a particular lineage, you may have to make a, take a stronger stand. Hmm? You find in Chaitanya Charitamrita, Krishna Das takes a strong stand sometimes. He's established, but there, this is you know breaking new ground and so forth. Um, just like uh, like you take the PLO, right? Their original strategy of Yasser Arafat was to go and be a terrorist, right? Mm -hmm. Just to get some attention. Hmm? So he went and just terrorized. This he was like the original terrorist, I guess. Um, um, and then eventually he became a statesman, right? Yeah, uh, so you don't you don't do that all the, forever. In other words, it may be a certain strategy, a certain time. You got to get some attention here. So we're. I mean, I don't agree with his policy, but uh, he wanted to get some attention to the cause of the Palestinians, and so he did things that would get him in the headlines. My Marsh, when he came to America, he said, "Look, any publicity is good publicity. At least they'll hear about us. Pay, and then if they, you know, look closely and see, they'll see we have something valuable to say." But the way the society is going and so forth, they'll dismiss these ideas of Vedant and Bhakti readily. So go out there and try to make make it available. And sometimes, you know, you may make a mistake and you may get bad publicity. But anyway, they'll come and talk to me and then I'll, you know, I'll, I'll set them straight, something like that. So uh, there may be a time and a place for that, but not for all time, in all places. Hmm. that help? Yeah. Another question? I was reading the Bhagavad Gita. Uh, Prabhupada mentioned one of those prayers that Rupa Goswami wrote about uh, our bee is like a, our mind is like a bee and it's looking for some nectar, honey. But uh, he's looking for a place in his lotus feet of Krishna. But he said, he mentioned that now that I know that not even great personalities like Brahma can see the, the rays that emanate from the nails from your lotus feet. Um, your, your lotus feet. Why they don't see the lotus feet of the Lord? He just shows his form, but you know his rays that emanate from the nails, nails of his lotus feet. I think what is being said in, the, in, that, in that verse is that the position of a Brahma which is like the, like a universal creator hmm? is a, is it's a big position materially hmm? karmically that it's a small position 
in, 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 by, from a spiritual perspective, and therefore some poetic ideas given that from that vantage point one cannot even see the rays that emanate from the toes, the lotus toes of, of, of Krishna. Hmm? So let, let my mind, like a bee, I guess he's saying, go and find the honey there in that lotus of his feet and plant myself there. Hmm? This is the position of bhakti, and that is a position that, from Brahma's perspective, uh, is 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 not something that um, that uh, for from Brahma's position, it's not something that 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 one can experience. However high one goes, in other words, materially, hmm, one isn't anywhere, even in relation to the feet of Krishna. Hmm? This is kind of the idea. Hmm? And if you're situated at the feet of Krishna, you're in a better position than, than the biggest executive, be a, be a Brahma or whomever. That's the idea of the verse. A small thing, in other words, in relation to bhakti, is big. And a big thing materially is, is small and, and, and less in relation to, uh, to Krishna. Anything else? What's the time now? Five after three. Panchatatva didn't come. He was going to see me at three. Okay. Well, again, it's nice to be with all of you. And I uh, hope some of you can come tomorrow. We'll, we'll chat. We can try to get you to ask some more questions. <laughs> Maybe we'll start with the questions. And, yeah. So... Oh, another um, question, okay. If we are part of Krishna and never separate from Krishna, then is there some aspect of ourself or are, and Krishna is performing all of these pastimes, are we in some capacity with Krishna in his performance of these pastimes? Well, this is a different ways to look at that. I mean, <laughs> if you want to look at what, what makes the world move, you could say it's Krishna Leela. So, for, for in a very distant sense, that what, something happens in Krishna Leela and then it manifests in the material world as, as something else, an earthquake or whatever. <laughs> There's a way of looking at life like that. Hmm? Um, and sometimes Leela has been written about in that way. In other words, the, the emotional life of Bhagawan is the cause behind everything. But to trace that all out is not always so easy. Something like that. Short answer. Okay. Uh, Bhagavad Gita ki jai. Krishna Bhakti ki jai.